If I'm in something, I really like to be all in on it. And so balance for me may look different than it does for other people. Like for me, it may be a two or three year stint doing something with a lot of focus. And then the other path sort of takes a back burner. What fuels a multi-passionate life? I'm Jessica Wan, and in this podcast, I interview people who straddle two completely different worlds. I call them ampersands, and we are collectively designing the Ampersand Manifesto. I'm delighted to be talking with Sarah Wumpler, a writer and tech executive. In her corporate life, Sarah has spent almost 15 years at Google leading teams focused on customer success, community operations, and support strategy. In her creative life, she writes under the pen name Sarah Ramsey and has published seven Regency romance novels. Sarah is currently taking a break from the corporate world to focus on writing full-time. After living in the Bay Area and in Denver for two decades, she now splits her time between rural Iowa and wherever her travels take her. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jess. It's great to be here. So you and I have known each other a long time now, since we first met in college. It's been fascinating to follow your journey, both in tech and as a writer. You mentioned that for both worlds, you are driven by curiosity and learning. How did curiosity fuel your decision to step away from corporate life for now and refocus 100% on writing? The reason I said that curiosity has fueled so many of my decisions is because I really do just love learning and love trying new things. And I think with the move out of the tech world and back into writing right now, what's fueling that is that I really want to try a new genre. So, you know, you mentioned in my bio that I wrote seven Regency romances. Part of why I went back to tech at the end of that phase was that I didn't really feel like I had much more to say in Regency, which doesn't mean that I won't go back and pick it up again. I think that there are still stories I would love to tell, but I was starting to feel like I had really figured out how to write a Regency romance. I had figured out how to publish. I had figured out how to sell it. The traditional response would have been to keep writing them and selling more of them. And that probably would have been the right thing to do from a purely money standpoint. But I think that I had reached a point where there wasn't a lot driving me from a curiosity standpoint to keep going in that genre. So I went back into tech and tried something new there. Coming out this time, writing fantasy is a completely different genre and it has different rules. It has different structures. I really find that there's something new for me to learn. And it's something that I feel like I can do a better job of learning if I really immerse myself in that world rather than sort of picking it up on the side. And so, you know, taking this pause now is really about giving myself the time to dive deep into what really is a new industry for me. I have some of the skills from the Regency side, but I really have to spend some time learning a totally different type of art as I move forward with this. What can you tell us about your work in progress? My work in progress is actually set in rural Iowa. So that's a big reason why, in addition to leaving my tech job for sort of career reasons, giving myself some time to spend here, I think has been really fruitful from an inspiration standpoint. I think that when I'm in rural Iowa, I have a better sense of sort of how the story needs to flow. I get inspired by just seeing random things on the street, hearing different stories from my parents, all of those things are sort of playing into this manuscript. It's definitely a fantasy. It has some sort of elemental magic. And the main character has, this may sound familiar, but has moved from San Francisco, where she has spent most of her life, 
back to Iowa because her father has disappeared and she is coming back to find out where he is. And in the process of that discovers a lot about her own magical abilities that she didn't realize she had. Ooh, I cannot wait to read this book. So you have moved back to rural Iowa, close to your parents and close to where you grew up. Tell me more about Sarah as a child. What did you imagine your career to look like? I don't know that I really imagined a career per se. And I think part of that is just because how I grew up, I came from a family, a lot of pretty strong-willed entrepreneurs. Very few people did well working for others. You may laugh at that knowing me. I think it's something that I have tried to overcome in my corporate career. But, you know, a lot of stubbornness, a lot of people who own small businesses, people who have really been driven by their own interests. And, you know, so as a child, I didn't really have that sort of idea in my head of a career per se that I think a lot of my friends who had maybe more parents who had steadier employment maybe would have had that experience. I did always want to be a writer. So I had always read a lot. I thought that storytelling would be part of what I did next. But I think because of that, you know, the tech side of my career was something I really just fell into because it wasn't something that I necessarily aspired to as a kid, but I did always aspire to have money and be able to pay the bills. And so that was a big piece of moving into tech. So it sounds like you are a bit of a rebel coming from a family of entrepreneurs and and being at Google over 15 years in different stints. You've worked at Google in a number of different roles over the years. You've directly managed over 100 individuals. This, this is huge. What inspired you to go back to Google the first time after you had written Eris Without a Cause? Um, why did you go back? I think the first time I went back, and it is funny that I've gone back to Google twice and now I've left three times. So I think I hold some. I'm not quite <laughs> at a record yet, but I think I may be getting close. The first time I went back was actually good timing and the right opportunity. And I knew even when I left Google the first time that it was unlikely that I would make enough money from writing that I would be able to do that full time forever. I always sort of expected that I would you know, go back into some sort of corporate role at some point. I wasn't quite looking yet, but I was actually recruited back to work on the Google Play Books product. So you know, Google does sell books. We're not nearly as big as Amazon or Apple, but I was recruited back to help them think about their self-publishing model and how they were working with small and mid-sized publishers. And to me, that was a really exciting chance to take what I loved with writing and apply it more in the business and technology sphere. So for me, that was the perfect right opportunity. And I also, you know this about me, I do love working with people and working with teams. And I think the one big downside for me of publishing and writing is that it's a pretty solitary endeavor. And a lot of the, especially writing idea development early phase of a book is just you in a room by yourself trying to self-motivate to keep going back to the page. And it doesn't have that sort of camaraderie or team feeling that you get working in a tech company, working on a product with other people and really trying to drive forward towards some sort of shared goal. And so at that point, I really needed to refill that well and get some of that people and mentorship experience that I was missing with the writing. That makes a lot of sense. I know you have worked on your ampersand lifestyle in many iterations, right? You've taken pauses from Google. I know at some points in time, you were working at Google and waking up at like 5 a.m. to write. Mm -hmm. What has worked well for you? This is something that I've thought a lot about because I would love to be a more traditionally balanced person. 
<laughs> I think that there are some people who it seems like almost effortlessly can have a corporate job and also pursue other passions on the side. Like something I've always admired about you, Jess, is that you were, you know, singing and working at the same time and you would find those opportunities to take on more of your creative pursuit without having to blow up your life and quit your job and move someplace and do it. There's definitely an advantage to being able to be balanced in that way. I think for me personally, though, my personality, and I think that goes back to the curiosity too. Like if I'm in something, I really like to be all in on it. And so balance for me may look different than it does for other people. Like for me, it may be a two or three year stint doing something with a lot of focus. And then the other path sort of takes a back burner. But then at some point, trusting my instincts that no, now's the time that I'm really engaged by this idea instead. And it's time for me to sort of make a move towards being focused on that for a bit. I think, you know, having balance in other areas of my life helps with that too. Like my friend groups stay the same. My life generally, I still, you know, do a lot of the same things outside of my passions. But I do think that for me, I find balance by switching back and forth rather than by trying to do incremental pieces of both at the same time. How do you know when it's time to make a change? Where do you feel it in your body or your brain? I do think that this most recent change, I felt it almost more in my body than anywhere else. And if I look back, that's probably where I was feeling it before, but I just wasn't as in tune as I should have been to some of those signs. I could feel like my heart rate was higher than it should have been. I was having headaches. Like my body was starting to tell me like, this is no longer in alignment with your creative goals. And I had a compelling idea for a book and that combination was enough. Now, I think when I've gone back to Google before, it was the opposite where it's like, I don't have an idea for the next book. I'm feeling bored. I'm feeling disengaged. I don't have a community. Like I want to learn something new in tech and that space is always changing. It's almost like a teeter-totter. Like it eventually the balance shifts and then I know it's time to switch sides. What has it felt like these last few weeks and months to write? It's felt really good. I think I'm still, I'm still actually in the really early phases of the book, which for me is always a very different feeling than later. And I'm trying to remember that and be graceful with myself for that. I think that, you know, with writing, for me at least, the early phase is super fun. I'm doing a lot of exploration. I'm, you know, reading a lot of other sort of mythologies and magic systems and trying to piece together like what's my idea based on this place that I'm setting the book in versus what other ideas or stories interest me and how can I pull them together like I'm still in that formation phase and that's exciting and also obviously drives my curiosity a lot so it feels good right now I think I in true slightly anxious fashion I'm anticipating the slog ahead I will get to the middle of the book at some point and be like, what is this? I don't know where this is going. That always happens. But, you know, right now it feels good. I think I'm pretty engaged with just trying to figure out who this character is and what the story is. 2011 was a huge year for you. You published your first book, Heiress Without a Cause, and you had a lot of firsts that came with it for sales, autographs, reviews from people that you don't know. What were some learnings from that time? You know, one learning was actually, and this may sound weird, but it was how to celebrate and acknowledge an accomplishment like that in a set of social circles and with groups of people who maybe didn't have that experience. People in your traditional life 
sort of know what success looks like in that world. You know, you got a promotion, you got some big contract, you are doing something good at work. I think what was different on the creative side was that I didn't have a roadmap for what I thought success should look like or how to celebrate it. And as much as I really like praise and I like the gold stars and I like getting an A plus on a report card, like publishing a book and having a sale and things like that, don't check those boxes in exactly the same way. And so I think one thing I had to learn was just like, how do I accept other people being happy for me with something that's like such a strange and different kind of accomplishment? And the flip side of that is, how do I keep that momentum going on the days and weeks and months where I'm not getting that kind of praise? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that a lot of us who come from sort of high achieving backgrounds, like I've said this before, my corporate world, at the end of the day, I accomplished something every day, even if it was just sending an email that somebody got and knew that I had done something, right? And with writing and with then writing the next book, like you don't get that little hit of gratification from someone else every day. You maybe get it when the book releases. And then you go back into the slog of writing a book for yourself by yourself. And so I think the biggest lesson for me was like the accolades and the publishing and all of that was super exciting. It was then learning how to carry that momentum forward. And remember that feeling even when I was not in that moment and was just trying to write the next book. That's great insight for anybody who's engaged in creative arts and arts that need a lot of practice and a lot of solitary time. Over the years, you have shared with me the world of romance from the conventions to published and non-published authors and how there kind of is a framework and a structure. There are also a lot of common misconceptions about readers of romance novels. What myths still need to be dispelled? Let's pause here a moment so you can reflect on this question. What myths need to be dispelled about your field of work? Outside of hosting this podcast, I coach leaders in the workplace to navigate change, thrive in their roles, and stay true to their values. And I love working with ampersands. If any of this intrigues you, reach out to me at jessicawan.com. J-E-S-S-I-C-A-W-A-N. Now, back to the show. I think a lot of the myths that need to be dispelled are romance readers actually and writers come from a really wide variety of backgrounds. I think that there's this myth that these are more uneducated, typically female, typically older, that they are somehow unfulfilled or they are, you know, looking for some happily ever after that doesn't really exist. I think I've had this conversation with some of my male friends who think that it gives their wives unrealistic expectations. And I'm like, if that's happening, maybe you should step up. (laughs) I don't think it's the book's fault that she's feeling like you need to do something different. But I think that, you know, when I go to these conferences and when I meet other writers and readers, I've got to say there are more lawyers in the romance world than you would imagine. I think that there's a lot of, you know, really brilliant, women and it is primarily a female dominated genre which i think is part of why it gets such a bad rap you know this is me putting on my feminist hat for a minute but i do think it's interesting that romance is the top selling genre in the US and you can barely find an independent bookstore that will carry it because they claim that their readers 
their readers don't want romance. And it is this sort of elitist thing that seems, it's just odd to me that they say that about romance, but they don't say it about mystery or thriller or sci-fi or fantasy, all of which have genre conventions that are just as strict as romance. But those genres don't tend to be seen as written purely for women. I think they have a formula to the extent that any genre has a formula. You know, you expect a happy ending in a romance. You expect to know who did it in a mystery. Like, they may not get caught, but you, the reader, know who did it at the end. Like, there are expectations with every genre. And there's some really, I think, amazing work that's done in the romance genre to talk about the human condition, especially the female condition, in ways that I don't think are accessible in other genres. Go read a romance. (laughs) Go read a romance. The past few years have been an interesting kind of confluence with Bridgerton hitting, you know, number one on Netflix. And also with the pandemic and all this doom and gloom news, we are all kind of looking for an escape. How has this newfound interest in Regency romance affected book sales and also what you have been interested in? Romance overall has done pretty well during the pandemic. And I would say a lot of that is just because you know with a romance that it's going to end happily. And I think it's the same as a lot of the research that tries to explain why people will just binge the same show they've seen over and over again, right? Like why people still watch Friends Mm. 30 years later. It's because you know the beats of the story, you know what you're getting. I think in an uncertain world, people do want some certainty out of their entertainment, which is why, you know, things like romance have done, I think, better. And for me, it has made me reconsider whether I would write Regency again. I think at some point in the future, I might. I do have ideas for other books. I think it's been good to see how it's done and how it could be done. On the Bridgerton side, what's interesting about that is like those books were actually written 25, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. had a very white cast were very sort of traditional historical romance and Shonda Rhimes has you know sort of reimagined that world in a really interesting way there are some really interesting things happening in the historical romance space that I think Bridgerton the tv series has opened up and that makes it maybe more interesting to go back and revisit that world and I think we're starting to see people writing much more diverse experiences in historical than we had in the past, which I think is pretty cool. And how do you think that applies to fantasy, this this new genre that you're exploring? What doors are opening for you that um, maybe were previously shut? I have wanted to write a book set in my hometown for a really long time. And I actually have partial drafts of two other books that were set here that I sort of slowly worked on in the past few years and could never really get them to gel. And I think that Frankly, the issue is that there's such a political divide right now that I think it's really hard to write a sort of contemporary literary fiction set in a place like rural Iowa without addressing some of the politics. Mm. And that's, I think, a hard story to tell when we're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know where things are going. I don't know how the world is going to evolve in the next five or 10 years. But I think that through fantasy, I can explore elements of that in a more speculative way without necessarily having to address current events right like it's been that's actually been a topic of conversation in the written in the literary world right now is like nobody wants to read a book about the pandemic but if you write a contemporary fiction set in 2021 how can you write it without mentioning the pandemic i think for me with fantasy like it's given me a chance to explore 
topics and themes that I find interesting without having to go into the things that I think people just don't want to read about right now. So your second return back to Google in 2017, after a few years focused on writing, you said yes to a role that was a big stretch at the time, leading community engagement programs for consumer products for all of Google. And you're now seen as a subject matter expert in this space. How do you think that side of you might evolve? Or where do you think that side of you is going to go in the next few years? I think for me, a lot of the move back to Iowa and then also what I'm thinking about for next steps in my non-writing career is really about community. Mm. You know, so I was intentional about taking that role that I had a lot of experience with other forms of consumer support, but I didn't have that sort of community or social media engagement. I really wanted that experience. And I think looking forward, that was the part of my role that really was the most exciting and inspiring. And I think that I I do intend to get more involved in community engagement and activism. I just don't know what that looks like yet. And I don't know whether that looks like, you know, working for or founding a company that does something with community outreach and engagement at a more national level. I don't know if that looks like doing hyper-local things. I don't know if that looks like creating a platform that helps other people do hyper-local community things. I think there's a lot of opportunity here and I really do want to explore it. I just don't know what it looks like yet. And that's part of this move is, you know, pushing myself outside of my comfort zone and making some contacts in these community spaces that I can then hopefully figure out what I want to leverage. I'm excited for what comes next whenever it comes. It sounds like there's a lot marinating right now. There's a lot marinating right now. I think, I don't know, that was another piece of leaving work when I did was that I had spent a lot of soul searching time figuring out what my values were. And I think the words I kept coming back to were creation and connection, which, you know, the connection piece has a really strong community element. And obviously creation actually does too. I wasn't getting that in my current role in my current job, but I could see that having a profound impact on what opportunity I take next. What advice do you have for people who are pursuing or thinking of pursuing the ampersand lifestyle? One piece of advice I would have is getting a really strong sense of how you work best and then using that as your strength rather than trying to fix it. I think that goes, you know, back to what I was saying about I tend to be all in on one or the other. Other people can sort of incrementally make progress on a path. I think for me at this stage of my life, I've come to accept that that is just how I work and I need to be at peace with that and leverage that. And if I'm all in on writing, really be all in on writing and not be worried about what I'm missing on the other path at this moment. And I think a corollary to that is, I think if you are in sort of an ampersand world, there are not a lot of comparison points. And in some ways, that's for the best. (laughs) I've certainly done way too much comparison on LinkedIn of, you know, people I started with at Google back in 2003, where people are at. And that can be a really not pleasant exercise. But it's even more unpleasant when I don't take into account the fact that I've had, you know, six or seven years where I was actually not on that path at all. And the flip side is, you know, if I compare myself to other writers who I started with, I haven't written as many books as some of them, but I also had several years where I was working in tech. So I think the other piece of advice I would just have is understanding and acknowledging that I think this ampersand path of having two really different passions is incredibly enriching and valuable. I also will probably not be as far along either path as I could have been if I'd been all in on just one. But 
I'm getting other better benefits in my life by splitting my time between two really different things. Yeah, you've carved out your own path. True. So there is no comparison. No. What else do you think should be in the ampersand manifesto? I really do think it's about trusting your instincts. You know, obviously do your homework and make sure you know sort of what you're getting into if you're about to make a big career change or a life change. But I think that, you know, with any creative pursuit, there are going to be periods, I think, where you feel really motivated and inspired and you have an opportunity and figuring out how to trust your instinct on when to leap for that versus, you know, when you may feel like you, for practical reasons, need to do something else. Those moments are going to happen. Again, because there is no roadmap and there's no clear single path for this, you're going to have to get comfortable with saying, I'm choosing to take this calculated risk to pursue my creative passion, or I'm choosing to actually take a calculated risk that right now I need to invest in this other side and do more there. Sarah, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Folks, you can check out Sarah's website at sarahramsey.com. That's S-A-R-A-R-A-M-S-E-Y. Or you can follow her on Instagram at Sarah Writes. If you liked this show, hit like, subscribe, and share with your friends and fellow ampersands. I had a chance to reflect on my interview with Sarah, and I wanted to leave you with a few key takeaways. It's been fascinating to see how each of us is balancing our pursuits and on what timescale. Sarah's gone all in on mostly one pursuit at a time for several years at a time, while others have balanced their pursuits in the timescales of months, weeks, or even days. It's such a personal thing of how to make your ampersand lifestyle work for you and to know how and when to switch things up. Sarah's interview also has me thinking a lot about home. When we think about creative expression, whether that's writing, music, or photography, so much of what shapes us is our upbringing and where we've called home. I'm excited to see this next evolution of Sarah's writing, now that she's actually physically returned to rural Iowa. Lastly, I love how Sarah talked about the deceit of comparison. I too have fallen into this trap of looking around at peers and their successes while not taking into account the full picture of all that I'm taking on. I agree with Sarah, you can't compare an ampersand path because it's probably unlike any other. The best advice perhaps is the one my husband and I got from his mom on our wedding day. Don't compare at all. It's a hard habit to break though. Okay. I can hardly believe it, but this will be my last time chiming in with these key takeaways as we wrap up this season of the Ampersand Manifesto. If you've been enjoying season one, please do us a huge favor and rate and review wherever you listen. And drop me a note. I'd love to hear what you really liked about this season and what you want to see more of. My email is j at jessicawan.com. I do want to take it someplace intentional. I don't know what my intention is yet, um, but I do intend to be intentional. 